Please do turn to Nehemiah and chapter 5 and we come to this chapter in our series which has been extended quite a lot but we come nevertheless to chapter 5 of Nehemiah. The subject in this chapter, not once does it mention the building of the wall, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. This chapter is all about difficulties and so our title tonight is Dealing with Difficulties. We will all know difficulties as individuals, as believers. We will know difficulties as a church. That's always been the pattern of history. In fact, the Apostle James says, Count it all joy when you find yourself overcome by trials and temptations and difficulties. And if it's to be our lot as a church, as individuals, if we're to know opposition and difficulty, well, we're privileged because that's Satan at work. And he must see something about us individually and as a church that he wants to attack. He doesn't attack his own. He doesn't attack those who live at ease and comfort. He goes to those who are hostile to him. And we are. We're hostile to Satan. For we're seeking to win people from his side. We're seeking to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so we come to this chapter tonight. The key verse, the turning point is in verse 6. I was angry, very angry, says Nehemiah, when I heard their outcry and these words. Well, we'll come to that shortly. Dealing with with difficulties. C.H. Spurgeon, the final sermon that he preached in London before he died, he died in 1892, but in 1891 he said these words, very significant words. If there be ridicule and reproach for the gospel of Christ, let us be willing to be ridiculed and reproached for his sake. Let us gladly share with him in his humiliation and never dream of shrinking from the battle. He would never preach again in London. He preached in Mentone where he was for the final months of his life. The battle. We're not to shirk the battle or to shrink from it. So that's the principle that he had obviously learned from Nehemiah. And this chapter. So dealing with difficulties. Chapter 4 was all about, in the most part, enemies on the outside. Sanballat and Tobiah. Yes, towards the end of chapter 4, some of the people were listening too much to the enemy. And they started to share, we've heard this, we've heard that. And the rumours went round. And they started to be a discouragement. So there were some internal as well as external problems. Chapter 5 is all insiders. It's an inside job as they call it. The people that are the discouragement and the cause of great disunity are the Jews themselves. Now this is a mixed multitude in the Old Testament. But for us, it's a picture of the church. And so the opposition that's inside is speaking of people within the church. 
Very sadly, sometimes the greatest problems that we have with the church is within the walls of the church. It's the enemy within. And you'd go a step further. Who is your greatest enemy? Well, in a sense, it's Satan. But my greatest enemy is myself. It's the enemy within. It's when I hit the self-destruct button. And when you do it, and when we do it, that's when we get into a problem. Well, let's look at the problem here. It's spelt out very clearly in verses 1 to 5. So let's look at the problem as it unfolds, as they hit the self-destruct button. And there was a great outcry of the people. What had happened was some of them were fighting, some of them were guarding, but very many of those that were farmers were not farming. And so inevitably the cost of the crops had gone up and there was a dearth in the land. It tells us that at the end of verse 3. There was a dearth, a famine. There wasn't much food like we have in this country. There was inflation and the people were getting into deep trouble financially. That was one problem. In addition to that, there was a tax to be paid to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. But to cap it all, those that had struggled to pay their tax and they'd struggled to buy food in the shops, they had mortgaged their lands. And the worst thing of all was they were borrowing money from the nobles, as it calls it, And they were charging exorbitant interest. Today we call that loan sharks. It used to happen in this country until legislation was uh, was tightened up. There was a number of companies where people went round the streets, knocked on doors, and they would charge interest of 100% per year. That means your loan is doubling every year. And it's that sort of thing that was going on here. That was outlawed in this country. And every company that lends money now has to have a license. And very little of black market debt happens. But here in Jerusalem, there were loan sharks. Jews lending to Jews. And what was happening was they couldn't pay the interest. So what they had to do was to sell their own children and their own daughters. Look at verse 5. We bring into bondage, captivity, slavery, our sons and our daughters to be servants. And look at this term here. This is what the wives are calling out. As they speak to Nehemiah, they say, some of our own fair daughters are now slaves to our own people. We were in Babylon. And Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah came and in successive waves they released the people with permission from Cyrus and Artaxerxes after him. We're now free. We're causing slavery again upon ourselves. We're back into bondage. And we don't have the power to redeem them because we don't have the money to pay. Well, 
usury was outlawed. I'll just give you one reference. I could turn to many, but Exodus chapter 22. And look at verses 24 and 25 and see what a solemn thing it was. This wasn't a small thing. The Jews were not unaware of the consequences of lending money and charging exorbitant interest. This is what it says in Exodus 22 and 24, 25. This is repeated in Deuteronomy as well, many times. Verse 24, And my wrath, this is the Lord God speaking through Moses, shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall be widows. It was the men doing this. And that's what happened in Jerusalem years later. And your children will become orphans, fatherless. Verse 25. If thou lend money to any of my people. This is a Jewish practice. It's gracious. God is saying, I won't have you get into debt. I won't have you. Treat your own people as though they're pawns on a board. Get rich quick. Exploiting your own people, making a quick buck and making a gain. Thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, a loan shark. That's what we would say. Neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Now it was permissible, I won't go to explain it and prove it, it was permissible to lend money. If you got into problems, you were on a bound to lend so that people could eat. Again, that was a gracious provision. And if you couldn't pay it back, you were permitted to pledge your land until such time as you could pay the money back until there was another harvest or the inflation rate had dropped, or your means of support had been benefited. But you are not to charge interest and make the problem mushroom and escalate. And this is what's happening in the middle of Nehemiah's 52-day project. What a crazy thing to happen. The work grinds to a halt. Not one mention. In chapter 5, if you go back to Nehemiah, you see at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 6 that they get back to the work and Nehemiah says in his writing that the walls are finished. But all of chapter 5, no mention of the wall. This is an interlude. This is a great problem. So, the self-destruct button has been hit. Exodus in the minds of the Jews was a dead letter. That's a great tragedy, isn't it? When God's word, we know it, but we just ignore it. And we think we can get away with living as we please, not as God has intended. God's ways are gracious, they're kind. They're to protect everybody. The weakest, the poorest. The Lord didn't want there to be a huge gap between rich and poor. He didn't want there to be injustice and gain got ill-gotten Ill gain. And so these laws were in place to protect the people. Well, that's the problem. Self-inflicted. 
Let's come to our second heading, dealing with difficulties. Here's the turning point, verse 6. The women have complained, the labourers, those that have borrowed, those who can't feed their children, their children are starving. And they come to Nehemiah and he says, And I was very angry. Isn't it wrong to be angry? Have you ever heard that before? Christians should never be angry. That's not right. We only have one recorded incident of our Saviour being angry. What was it about? Exploitation. Making gain. It was the same thing. Outside the temple in the precinct. Stealing from the poor with turtle doves being charged at a hundred over what they should have been. And so the Lord was angry. In a, in a great public demonstration, he kicked over the tables and he was speaking to the Pharisees that permitted gain for their own benefit within the courts of the most holy place physically of the time. And so Nehemiah was very angry. It was righteous anger. It's not wrong to be angry, parents. We've all got angry. But I guarantee if you're like me, 99% of the time we've been angry. It's not been righteous anger. It's been anger that was uncontrolled. Look at this here. Verse 7. These are lovely words. I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words then. I took myself aside. I'm paraphrasing. And I consulted with myself. Nehemiah thinks very carefully. He's going to take his own thoughts captive. He's going to put his emotions down. Let the temperature drop a little. He's going to take control of himself. And he's going to come up with a plan, a careful plan. He's not going to act rashly. Parents, we must never do that. Never, this isn't quite the application, but I think it's a fair one. Never strike out when you're angry. Always be in control. Consult with yourself. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah could have avoided this problem. He could have just carried on building the wall. He knew that would not be the answer. Because the people would be so divided, so dispirited, the war would not have been finished and he would have had a revolt against him. So there's a lesson here. Leaders, they deal with problems and they deal with them quickly, calmly and they come up with a plan and that's what Nehemiah does here. First, he's very angry. Secondly, he doesn't lose it, to use that term. Has that ever been said of you? He lost it, particularly men. Well, Nehemiah didn't lose it. He was in full control of his faculties. He was a man passionate enough to get angry, but wise enough not to act until he had considered the matter carefully. That's the right balance. And so what does he do? Verse 7, he rebukes the nobles. He goes 
One by one, he probably knew who a few of them were. Names were circulating. He goes to the rulers and he tells them off straight away. You are charging interest. Every one of your brothers, you're making a gain. And then he does something very wise. Look at this, verse 7. I called a great meeting. I set a great assembly against them. I organized a huge meeting. Put down your swords and trowels. We're going to come into the marketplace and gather. Thousands gather. You can picture it. Some of them don't know what's going to happen. And he speaks to them, verse 8. And he says, do you remember we were captives in Babylon? And now we're free. We've been redeemed. The Lord has worked wonderfully. We were captives. We were sold unto the heathen, to the Egyptians. And now, will you sell your brothers and sisters back into a different form of slavery? Or shall they be sold unto us? Look at the end of verse 8. They were very quiet. Of course, the people knew who were doing this, didn't they? They knew who they'd borrowed from and they knew who the loan sharks were. Nehemiah verse 9 says, it is not good what you do. Wasn't that wise? What you're doing is not good. That's a good way to speak as a parent, isn't it? It's a good way to speak as a church officer. What you're doing is not good. You know it's not good. He's appealing to their consciences. He knows they're causing division, disunity, disharmony. And they knew in their heart of hearts this was wrong. Greed is often at the cause of problems in life, isn't it? Power, greed, pride, those are grandparent sins. And so it is here. It's not good what you do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God? You've got a rebellious child. I'm not speaking to any of the children here tonight. Speak to your children that way. What you're doing is not good. You know it. Shouldn't you be walking in the fear of our God? Because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies, you've got a witness. Remember, this is typical. It's a picture as though this was the church of Christ. We have a witness. We have a testimony. One of our guiding principles should be, look what people outside the church will think. What you're doing is not good. It's not a good testimony. We should be walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, at the same time in this big meeting, do you see what he's also doing? He's naming and shaming, yes. But he's also introducing accountability. Now, I think it's a good practice sometimes, not always, that you have a family meeting or a church meeting as we do as a church. And you bring the matter before the people and you say, this is not good. This needs to be dealt with. Shouldn't we be walking in the fear of our God? But Nehemiah is not done. He now insists on restoring the problem verse 10 i likewise and my brethren my servants i might have taken money i might have charged a tax 
I can do that because I'm the governor. Verse 11, restore, put it right. You've now got the money because you've been charging interest more than you loaned. Pay it back. Give it back to them. Let them have their land again like they did in the year of Jubilee. Let them have their vineyards and olive yards, etc. And restore to them. That's what the Lord does. The Lord restores the years that the locusts have eaten. He restores in the life of every converted person everything that's lost, that's of value. He gives back and he's telling them this is the way of Christ. Restore. Give it back. Put it right. Verse 12. They're shamed. They've been convicted. They know their sin. They've got nowhere to hide. They've got nothing to say. We will restore and we will require nothing of them. The loan is written off. So will we do as thou sayest. Nehemiah is not done. He doesn't trust them. Go and get the priests. And let them stand before us. And I want you, you, you and you to make a promise. You're not going to do this again. And what you've said you will do, you will do it and you will pay back. So they took an oath according to the promise. He's still not done. Verse 13. He's now going to shake his clothes. He gets his long flowing robe or something like that. And he shakes it out and he says, any of you that don't keep your promise that you've made before the priest, may God shake you out. This is in a very ancient East way. When they mourned, they wore black. When they made an oath, they did something dramatic. And so he shook out and said, I hope God will shake you out and empty you out of every blessing. And so all the congregation said, Amen. That's what we do when we agree. I like the Amens that we have here now in a, as a church. It's good, isn't it, when we can join together and say, I agree. Worthy is the Lamb of God that died. Amen. Amen. And the people joined. And it's not just Amen. What does it say at the end of verse 13? They praise the Lord. Yes, justice is done. The division is healed. Sin that was in the camp has been dealt with. Praise God. We've forgiven. The debt has been forgiven. Justice has been done. Nehemiah has brought us back together again. Praise God. Isn't this wonderful? The way Nehemiah deals with this great difficulty. The whole project could have been ruined. But Nehemiah sees the problem and he deals with it. Controlled passion, mind, not just the heart. We operate with the mind first. The heart feels, but the mind guides. Clear thinking, the fear of God is the principle that we operate by and that's the way we should walk in the fear of God. Justice, restitution and a healing of what was broken and the principle going forward, accountability. We must be accountable to one another. Now we come to verse 14. This is a different section of verses. 
we believe that Nehemiah here is referring back to the 20th to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years that he was the cupbearer, and he's going back, and this is like a sort of diary that he's reading out for our benefit. Bear that in mind, because when we come to look at this lovely verse 19 at the end, this isn't him speaking to everyone, he's speaking to himself, writing down a note in his diary, so to speak. So he gives this as an illustration. It's an illustration that shows to us his leadership. He wasn't parading this before the people, saying, look at me, I'm better than you. No, he's saying, this was my example, Mr. Diary, as he writes down what he's done. From the time that I was appointed to be their governor, verse 14, back home, and now, since I've come here from the 20th even to the 32nd year, 12 years, I and my brethren, the other rulers, have not eaten the bread of the governor. Now, that doesn't just mean a loaf of bread. What it means is I could have had all my privileges, all my rights. I could have used all my wealth. I could have sat at the top table. And he goes on to explain he could have had an ox every day, presumably for him and the others that were at his table. I could have had this to eat and that to eat. I could have had my silver and gold and I could have lorded it over the people. But I didn't do that. What would happen if it was one rule for me and another rule for the Jews that were in captivity. Does this sound familiar in our land? This isn't political. The, the rule makers, the law makers, not living by the laws that they have made? That's wrong, isn't it? Parents, do as I say, not as I do. No, that doesn't work. Do as I do. Follow my example. That's the lesson that comes from this. I've not eaten bread. Verse 15. But the former governors that were before me, they were chargeable unto the land. They raised a tax and they put it, put it in their own pockets. And they'd taken bread and wine and all these other things. But I didn't do that because I knew that I wanted to identify with the people. They and I, we're one. We're all slaves in Babylon. We don't want to be here. And I did this, he says, at the end of verse 15, because of the fear of God. That's the way we live. I'm speaking to myself as a leader. I have to set an example. I shouldn't do anything that I don't want others to do. And neither should we in our families do things that we don't want our children to do. I'm not talking about chores and things like that. I'm saying as a principle, we're to be the same. We're in this together, is what Nehemiah is saying. Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, and neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered unto the work. He's looking back. It's not in the crisis situation. He explains, verse 17, of the many that he had round his table. 
and verse 18, that which was prepared for me, and so on and so on. And at the end of verse 18, why did I do this? I knew that the people had a hard lot. The bondage was heavy upon this people. He empathised. That's what leadership does. Leadership doesn't say, do it because I say so. Be at every meeting because I am. Well, I have to be. I'm the pastor. I hope you can be. When we've prepared food, you want it eaten. But we know that some people have duties. They have responsibilities. Only one parent can come out. Nehemiah has empathy because some people have busy schedules. They study and they work at the same time. And so Nehemiah is empathetic. Well, let's come to conclusion with some lessons tonight. Lessons to learn about Christian living. And I just summarise them. I think they've come through the passage. The first is this. As believers, and especially as leaders and parents, we should always be setting an example. Think about your conduct, the old golden rule. What if everybody did what I did? What if everybody cut corners or had the most expensive watch or car or whatever it is? You know the point. Nehemiah didn't. He could have done, but he chose consciously, intentionally not to. He was guided by what was right, and what was right was the example that he should set and the impact it would have on others. Secondly, leadership takes decisive action, but action that's not compulsive. It's not impulsive. Action that gathers people together and is transparent. Remember in the church we never have force. We're not dictators. We try to bring people through conscience to what is right. Thirdly, sacrifice. We've covered that. Fourthly, look at the zeal of Nehemiah. The zeal that he had for the Lord of hosts. Fifthly, his integrity. We speak often of that. A believer should have a backbone of integrity, top to bottom, going through their spine. I do what is right before the Lord, before the fear of the Lord. Sixthly, conviction. He knew what the word of God said and he wouldn't let it slip. He wouldn't let bad practice go on. Do you know within the church, money can divide people. As a church grows, you have the haves and the have-nots. Money can be quite divisive. Those that have got a big house and those that are renting. Those that are struggling. It should never be like that. There should be empathy. And we should share what we have. And we should make sure that those who are poor and don't have are cared for. That's the principles of the whole of the Old Testament Jewish law system, those rules, not the Ten Commandments, but the national laws that were to promote grace and kindness. And then finally, we come to this verse 19. I could have done a Bible study just on this, but this is what it says. Think upon me. Remember, he's writing in his diary. That's what I imagine. Think upon me. This isn't a selfish prayer. Lord, think upon me, my God, 
for good. Isn't that lovely? He wants the good of the Lord, not the good of the land. He wants God's goodness. That's what we want for our lives, the good of God for our family, for our lives, for the church. Think upon me, my God, for good. And here's the difficult bit that could be misunderstood. According to all that I have done for this people. Now you could read it like this. I've been so good. I've worked so hard. I've sweated. I've drawn up plans. I've implemented. I've dealt with this difficult people. Now give me what I deserve. That's not what it says. It's much more like this. Lord, I've tried to be faithful. I've done my very best to lead this difficult people. A bit like Moses in the wilderness. I've tried to put the fear of God before the people. Now, Lord, bless me and help me that I would continue to put the good of the Lord before the people, that I would be transparent, open, and have integrity. Look upon me, O Lord, for good. In the same way that I've sought to put good before the people, I think that's what it means. And that's a wonderful text for us to remember. Think upon me, my God for good, according to all that I have done for this people. What a way to live, like Nehemiah did. A man of principle, who always put what's right first. When you have decisions to take, when you deal with difficulties at work, at home, at school, Think to yourself, what would be the right thing to do before my conscience, in the light of Scripture, applying his godly, timeless, perfect principles to this situation that I can say as Nehemiah did, that I have done for this people what is good before the Lord. Well, let's close our meeting.